behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. From the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In 1969, the songwriting duo Cy Coleman and Carolyn Lay penned a song that would quickly become a staple of American popular music. Recorded by greats like Tony Bennett and Ella Fitzgerald and even Bob Dylan, The Best Is Yet to Come was most popularized by the one and only Frank Sinatra. It became one of Sinatra's many many hits. It was, in fact, the last song that Sinatra would ever sing in public and etched on his gravestone in Cathedral City, California, is the song's title and refrain, The Best Is Yet to Come. The song gives voice to the thrill and exhilarating delight of falling in love. But it does so in a paradoxical, somewhat peculiar way. The song celebrates the beauty of love's beginnings, truly falling head over heels for another person. But the real joy of love, it maintains, the best of love is always to come. In lyrics that interestingly almost echo the theological, the song embraces the present with an eye toward the future. Wait till you're locked in my embrace. Wait till I draw you near. We've only tasted the wine, but we're going to drink the cup dry. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum, but still, it's a real good bet, the best is yet to come. The song draws out this interesting orientation toward the future, delighting in love's present, while filled, nevertheless, with the hope of things to come, when, as Sinatra puts it, the best is yet to come. Come the day your mind. He sings it much better, of course. <laughs> I think what Coleman and Lay were getting at when they wrote this song is this mysterious way that time grows love deeper, richer and thus more truly joyful, even if time also makes love more complex, perhaps even more difficult. There's something about love, in other words, that gestures toward the future, that lunges forward in the hope of love being made complete. Now, there's a $10 word for this in Christian theology. It's called eschatology. Eschatology simply refers to the way that the Christian life indeed all created life is being pulled toward a future. The end or goal of creation, says the Christian tradition, is eternal life with God, communion 
with the blessed Trinity, the perfection of our created nature by the abundance of grace, and as we say in the Creed, we each week the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. To be a creature of God, in other words, is to be dust bound for heaven, bound for resurrection. The resurrection of the body, the restoration of creation and new creation, this was the hope of Israel. Indeed, it is a hope which Jesus affirmed in his own life and teaching, especially in his confrontations with the Sadducees, those who denied the future resurrection. But what no one expected, what no one had really even dreamed of, and thus what could only be received as a kind of interruption, as a rupture in history, is that this future resurrection would come breaking into the present, breaking into our world, conquering death and rolling back tombstones in the person of Jesus Christ. And tonight, on this holiest of nights, we celebrate this moment in which God reaches into our world and beats back sin and evil and death, in which the slain Jesus is raised to life so that we also might be so raised. Tonight, we celebrate the Easter miracle on which all of history turns. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Indeed, indeed, alleluia. So tonight I just want to proclaim in simple terms this Easter gospel, this work of God, which for us is nothing less than the meaning of history itself and the crux of reality. And I want to do this by looking at St. Matthew's gospel and these words of the angel to the two Marys at the empty tomb, because in these words is contained the whole gospel. These words do this in three parts, in three dramatic movements, if you will. In three simple remarks, the angel of the Lord proclaims the good news to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and thus re-narrates all history, past, present, and future, in light of Jesus' resurrection. In the first movement, the angel of the Lord explains to the Marys the present moment. What has just happened? To be fair, the angel does have some explaining to do. There is a great earthquake which shakes the earth, and then an angelic celestial figure descends from the heavens. Then this angel rolls back a massive stone which covers the face of the tomb and sits on it. The guards at the tomb are in such shock and fear that they fall on the ground like dead men, and for good reason, I think. This is no precious moments plump cherub. We're told that the angel is white as snow with an appearance like lightning who is introduced by an earthquake. What's being described for us is an apocalyptic 
moment. But then, when all the tumult and chaos finally dies down a bit, the angel looks at the two women. Do not be afraid. To which I almost imagine Mary Magdalene replying, excuse me? (laughs) But the angel's right. There truly is no reason to fear because all this chaos is pointing to one single thing, the most glorious event the world has ever seen. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, the angel declares. He is not here. He has risen. And in this moment, the first utterance of the gospel of Christ's resurrection is made. These two humble women, devoted followers of their Lord, become the first recipients of this revolutionary word. And from these two Marys, the church receives the testimony of resurrection. Now, we should be clear about one thing. When the angel says Christ has been raised, when the two Marys proclaim to the disciples that they have seen the risen Christ, what they proclaim is not a metaphor, not a profound mystical experience. It is not a symbol. To borrow and slightly modify a remark of Flannery O'Connor's, if the resurrection is only a symbol, then to hell with it. When we meet the Marys at the empty tomb, we're way beyond symbols and metaphors and nice myths. What the angel proclaims is raised is the flesh of Jesus Christ. Not a spirit, not a resuscitated corpse. What emerges from the tomb is the redeemed and transformed and transfigured flesh of Jesus. It is the true body of Christ. And Christianity stands or falls on exactly this. If the body of Jesus is not raised, then ours cannot be either. And if there is no hope for resurrection, no hope for our bodies, no hope for creation, if it all ends with dust being returned to dust and no more, then as St. Paul says, we of all people are most to be pitied. But the center of Christian hope is that God does not abandon what God creates. God redeems it. And the resurrection of Jesus' body is the pledge of our own resurrection. He is not here, for he has risen, the angel declares. The God who takes on this flesh, bears this flesh even unto death, now redeems that flesh and so also ours by raising it to new and eternal life. That's what's going on in this moment. It's resurrection. But then the angel begins a second movement. Come. 
see the place where he lay, the angel says, and so invites these two women to enter the bleakest place the world has ever known, the dark tomb where the God-man lay dead on a slab. I don't know about you, but just about the only thing more terrifying to me than the idea of the Son of God crucified is that he would be buried. There's something at least strangely beautiful about the cross, the crushed body of a man who loved unto death. That's why we have the crucifix. But there's nothing glorious about the tomb. The tomb is where bodies get locked away and lost to history. The tomb is where crucified bodies go to decompose and decay and be forgotten. The tomb is where the sin of the world laid upon Christ's shoulders on the cross now mocks him dead and helpless, locked in a cave along with all the disappointments and sorrows and failed hopes of all humankind that was groaning for salvation. The tomb is the place of finality. It's the ascription, the end period. This life is terminated. It is finished. The curtain falls and history moves on. That is the tomb. But come, see the place where he lay. Come inside. Come into the tomb. Two women are invited into the darkness of this place. Only now they discover that the slab upon which the lifeless body of Christ lay, it is empty. The irreversible ending of this God-man's life has been reversed. The closed curtain of history has been torn open and a new act begins. The emptiness of this tomb now proclaims that no evil, no agent of death, no reign of sin can now stand opposed to the resurrected Son of God. And this movement into the tomb to see the place where Christ lay, it is also a movement into the past. It's a movement to look at the past which contains every moment, every human action that pushed Christ into this place to redeem us. All history's evil, all humankind's sin, the extent of humanity's rebellion, it saturates this tomb. But now it holds Christ's body down no more. And in breaking its power, in smashing the grip of sin and evil and death, history, the world, creation, is now opened up to the redemption of God. This resurrection, this great reversal reaches not only throughout the whole world, it reaches backward in time, all the way to Adam's fall and transfigures it. Christ's resurrection redeems history itself. Past 
and present are now redeemed and the future is opened. Open to the eternal reign of God. And this is the third movement of the angel's gospel announcement. This is where it's all going. Then go quickly, the angel says, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. He is going before you, not just into Galilee, but into eternity itself. This is the Christian hope. This is the end of human life. The eschatological destiny of creation is no more and no less than Jesus' own. He is going before you. He will take this resurrected flesh to the right hand of the Father. His very resurrection will be your own. Is this not the heart of St. Paul's gospel? Did you hear it? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, Christ's resurrection is the seal and pledge of your own. In other words, Christ's resurrection is the hinge on which history turns, but your resurrection is where all history ends. In other words, the best is yet to come. And so tonight, in the sacrament of baptism, in the feast of this Holy Eucharist, in the lighting of candles and the ringing of bells, we proclaim loudly and joyfully, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. So feast and celebrate and sing and clap and shout. Rejoice in remembrance of that first Easter morning. But don't forget also to listen. Listen for the voice of the resurrected Christ. Because he's going ahead of you. Into the arms of the Father. Into the life of resurrection. And he's calling you. Calling you to share his own resurrected life. Because resurrection is about so much more than immortality, so much more than living forever. Resurrection is about being loved forever. It's about sharing in the life of the Trinity, and that is your calling. Can you hear the Lord Jesus calling you? Friends, he's doing even more than calling you. He's singing you there. And do you know what he's singing? The best is yet to come, come the day you're mine. What are you singing back? <laughs>